0: Hello and welcome to A History of Electronic Music part 17 Welcome to the show. Uh, my name is Paul Sheki, and before we get into it properly, uh, just a quick note that I've tidied up my web presence a bit. Uh, I've got rid of my MySpace for this programme, which I had for some reason for for a long, long time. And I've also got rid of the Twitter feed for this, which was at A-H-O-E-M. Uh, that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, So the main point of call for the the web stuff related to this podcast is the Facebook page. Uh, Just search A History of Electronic Music on Facebook and like it if you like. Um, You can still follow me on Twitter um, at at Paul Sheiky, that's spelled S-H-E-E-K-Y, and I'll occasionally tweet about some of the other stuff I do, like uh, screenwriting and filmmaking and such and such, and occasional bad jokes too. Um, So, but for now, let's get on with the show, and this time I'm going to be talking about industrial music from the mid-70s to the mid-80s. Of course, as with all music, industrial had its precursors, and I think we've covered most of them in previous episodes, but there's one particular album that was particularly important in setting the stage for industrial, and that's Metal Machine Music by Lou Reed. The album consists entirely of guitar feedback fed through various effects and played at different speeds. Although seen as a radical departure for Reed, it's actually more like a return to the drone music that influenced the early Velvet Underground sound. Now it's seen as an early example of noise music. Here's a little bit of it. Machine Music, Part 1 by Lou Reed from 1975 and that's a good example of how traditional instruments could be transformed by being put through effects and tape manipulation. And one of the pioneering bands of industrial music were doing very similar things in their attic studio in the northern steel town of Sheffield. Cabaret Voltaire took their name from the Zurich Nightclub which was the centre of the anarchic art movement, Dada. Dada of which they were great fans. But their musical inspiration came more from Brian Eno and his exhortation that you no longer needed to be a musician to make music. Here's a member of the band, I'm not sure which one, talking about that period.
1: During, maybe 75 or whatever onwards. The techniques that were pioneered, or whatever, with the development of synthesizers, uh, the, the simple use of multi-track tech, or whatever, uh, meant that people could sort of express whatever they wanted to without having a tremendous backlog of, of knowledge, you know, about, about the sort of instruments. And also, the sort of the feeling that, that came up around, you know, the prompt period, there was sort of rejection of the notion that you have to be a trained musician.
0: That was taken from the November 1981 edition of Morocco Klung Audio Magazine. I just got it off YouTube, so you can listen to the full thing on YouTube if you like. We are not musicians became one of Cabaret Voltaire's mottos. Another was no sound shall go untreated and this was certainly apparent in their early experimental works, which were really done for their own amusement, and to piss people off with their strange music, which they'd occasionally play out of the back of the van as they drove around Sheffield. Using a tape recorder and some homemade effects units, they twisted conventional instrument sounds beyond recognition. In this case, a clarinet. (laughs) (coughs)
2: I'm going to
0: Cabaret Voltaire and the imaginatively titled Treated Clarinet from the subsequently released album Attic Tapes, 1974-1976. Uh, to 1976. As well as treating instruments electronically, they also experimented with montage techniques, combining found sounds with samples from records, TV and radio, a thing that would become a particular trait of the industrial genre. This clip from the same audio magazine as before explains how their approach to sound was influenced by the work of William Burroughs.
1: William Burroughs, for one thing, is doing very much the same thing with words. You know, he will will give the words, or the phrases, or whatever, uh, a life of their own. And I think that's what we've tried to do with sound, i.e. take different sounds, place them together in the juxtaposition of those sounds, gives them a new, a new sort of lease on life, a new meaning, and um, so people like Burns do that with words.
0: And here's that idea in practice, and it's also a track which features a Farfisa drum machine having a nervous breakdown. Dada Man by Cabaret Voltaire uh, from the cassette album 1974 to 1976 originally released only on cassette anyway Cabaret Voltaire weren't the only group taking Dada's anti-art aesthetic and creating their version of anti-music in the rundown inner city borough of Hackney in London's East End throbbing gristle were also distilling the atmosphere of post-industrial decay Here's Chris Carter from the group talking in the good old Synth Britannia documentary.
3: I mean, it sounds a bit of a cliche now, but at the time we were trying to sort of reflect the sounds around us in, in some weird way. Our studio was in like a, an industrial area and there were lots, lots of different noises going on all the time. And we were sort of trying to reflect all these sounds and the way they all come together into like this weird mishmash of electric electronic experimental textures.
0: Throbbing Gristle grew out of the experimental art collective Coombe Transmissions, whose principal members called themselves Cozy Fanny Tutti and Genesis P. Orridge. Coombe's extreme shock art antics involved things like giving themselves enemas with blood or milk then farting out the liquid onto the gallery floor. By 1975, they were worried that their work was becoming too accepted by the art establishment, so they decided to take their assault on the conventional into the sphere of popular music. Getting together with Chris Carter and Peter Sleazy Christofferson, they formed a throbbing gristle and made music like this. Uh, that was Final Musac, and it was written in the period about 1975 to 76. But I got that from uh, a bootleg album which was called The First Annual Report of Throbbing Gristle, which came out a lot later. Because originally that was only released on cassette and just handed out to friends in a very DIY punk style. Robin Gristle's music at this time was recorded in their home studio, dubbed The Death Factory, due both to its proximity to London Fields, which was used to bury the plague victims of old London, and a reference to the Nazi death camps. Extreme imagery and subject matter were a key component of TG's music, as Pete Orridge has said. We were interested in taboos. What the boundaries were, where sound became noise and where noise became music, and where entertainment became pain, and where pain became entertainment. All the contradictions of culture. Their music was confrontational, even assaultive, and they experimented with high and low frequencies at extreme volumes to create bodily reactions such as nausea, dizziness and tunnel vision. Even in their studio work, the poor recording quality was part of the aesthetic, as the music wasn't so much meant to be listened to, as felt. They also attempted to reject all previous notions of musicality, believing that the three chords you needed to learn to be in a punk band was three too many. They did take on board punk's DIY attitude, however, and started their own label, Industrial Records, in 1976. Using the phrase industrial music for industrial people as their tagline, and a grainy photo of an Auschwitz crematory for their logo, They released their first official album, the second annual report of Throbbing Gristle. Their first single followed soon after, and it continued the fascination with fascism, being about a glue sniffer who takes things too far and ends up sniffing the Nazi death gas, Zyklon B. I B Zombie from 1977. Shock tactics, however, can only go so far until they themselves become predictable. So in a radical change of style, the other side to the double A-sided single was the quite pleasant sounding United, which was designed for people to fall in love to, according to the press release. from 1977. By this point Cabaret Voltaire had also realised that there was an audience for the kind of music they were making and thus signed to Rough Trade Records in 1978. Their sound had developed too, more rhythmically repetitive and featuring a lot more guitar, although it was often so heavily processed that you couldn't really tell that it was such. Uh, Their music also often featured vocals around this time too. In this clip from the October eighty-one edition of the Marocky Klung audio magazine, a member of the group explains their approach to vocals.
1: We're conscious, uh, you know, of the fact that when we're, we'd actually do mixed vocals down, we always put them lower in the mix than than normal, mainly because none of the stuff that we do is usually regarded as a song, you know, i.e., vocals with a, a musical or sort of accompanied backing. We've always regarded the voice as an instrument to be used as any other instrument that was one of the reasons why we um, we usually put some form of electronic modification onto the device or treatment to actually distort it
0: and that was either chris Watson or steve malinda i'm not quite sure which and i don't think the person that put it on youtube is quite sure either um, but anyway here's an example of their new sound at this time uh, this is from a single silent command Pilot Command, from 1979, and that's available on the compilation The Original Sound of Sheffield 78-82. Also in the north of England, a post-punk scene was developing around Factory Records in Manchester. Despite the name, Factory Records were less industrial in character, but still had a lot of interest in electronic music and their most notable signing at the time, Joy Division, incorporated synthesizers into their more guitar-based sound. Here's Bernard Sumner from the band explaining how the track Atmosphere came about, and he will go straight into the track afterwards.
2: I remember we went to write a track in a studio called Cargo in uh, Rochdale, and when we went in, I, I'd, uh, we found a little Woolworths organ that you switched it battery powered, switched it on and it blew a fan. You could play chord buttons it, like, so I was messing about with these chord buttons. And then Martin Hannett, I think, had brought in a Selena string synth, and you can play more than one note at a time on it. So I've got the organ and, and, and the and hit these chord buttons and wrote Atmosphere, Joy Division track, and just seemed to write it there in the studio.
0: As I say, that's not really industrial, but it's relevant to what was going on at the time. So that was Joy Division and Atmosphere from 1980. And here's Bernard Sumner again talking about an important aspect of electronic music at this time, and particularly to industrial, the homemade synthesizer.
2: The first synthesizer we had in Joy Division was a a little thing called Transcendent 2000. And I actually built it from a load of components. At the time I had insomnia and I couldn't sleep very well. So I, got, I used to get this magazine called Electronics Today or something like that. And in it was this synthesizer. And, and if you were to buy one in those days, it was incredibly expensive. And we didn't have any money. So I thought, well, this is really cheap. It's only like 200 quid. And How difficult can it be to build it? And it was like soldering components in, you know, by hand. <laughs> Took about two months of doing that and then it didn't work incredibly well you know
0: Back in the death factory electronics whiz Chris Carter was responsible for building all manner of unique devices
3: And I had these synths um, and because they were um, homemade synths, they weren't bought sort of off the shelf, they weren't Roland's and Korg's Um, they sounded quite unique anyway they didn't sound like regular synths And then I built this effects unit. I saw this design in Practical Electronics and you could combine all the um, effects together and um, put a guitar through it or a voice or anything. So I started building these units for Throbbing Gristle and called them Gristleizers.
0: In his book, Rip It Up and Start Again, Simon Reynolds describes a rather different Gristleizer. Carter cobbled together a unique gizmo nicknamed the Gristleizer, for sleazy to play a sort of music concrete mechanism or primitive sampler. Its one active keyboard triggered an array of cassette machines, each loaded with found sounds, TV and movie dialogue, or everyday conversations surreptitiously recorded by roving sleazy. Sounds a bit like an anarchic version of a Mellotron, really, doesn't it? Um, But as well as unique instruments, Throbbing Gristle had a unique compositional style too. Most materials were improvised live at their gigs, with only the electronic backing track pre-prepared and minimal discussions about what each band member would do during the performance. Vocals were generally improvised too, with Pete Orridge given a theme a few minutes before they began. This track is a recording of discipline as it was effectively written on stage at the SO36 Club in Berlin. was Discipline, uh, the Berlin version, and that's a bonus track on the CD of 20 Jazz Funk Greats, which was originally released in 1979. By this point, the idea of industrial music had spread and been taken up and developed by numerous bands worldwide. I'd say that there's about three discernible trends in the music at this point. Let's take a look at the more experimental and noise music aspects first. This comes in several flavours. American Boyd Rice had been experimenting with electronic music since the mid 70s, but it wasn't until the late 70s that he got something released on Mute Records under the name Non. Even the release itself was experimental, as the vinyl record contained locked grooves and an extra hole for multi-access playing at any speed that you chose. But it also had normal playing tracks as well, and this was one of them uh this is mode of infection non from uh, released in 1980 but it was written before that and that i got that from the cd mute audio documents which is a big mute records box set Uh, also in the electronic noise music vein at this time was a sound art collective led by nigel ayers and called nocturnal emissions in the early 80s they were experimenting with music like this was a track called Hangament uh, by Nocturnal Emissions from between 1980 and 1984, can't be sure, but it's on a CD called Duty Experiment. And regular listeners to this programme will of course recognise that that sounds quite a lot like the avant-garde electronica from the 50s and 60s. And that's another aspect of industrial, really. Uh, that the access to technology led to a democratisation of the ability to make weird noise experiments that hardly anybody would actually listen to. And another obvious parallel to industrial was krautrock, and there's a great many similarities, both musically and in the experimental convention-defying attitude of the two genres. One artist that's often labelled as industrial but really had more in common with other genres is Nurse With Wound. Founder member Stephen Stapleton considered 1982's Homotopy to Marie to be Nurse With Wounds' first real album. And from that album, this is a short extract from the very long track, The Schmurtz, Unsullied by Suckling! (laughs)
1: I'm gonna go get my gun!
0: A Schmertz, Unsullied by Suckling, in brackets, uh, from 1982 by Nurse With Wound. And the full track is about 25 minutes long, so sort of Tangerine Dream length really, so it points more towards Krautrock in a way. But a one-time collaborator of Nurse With Wound was William Bennett, who is responsible for the formation of the most extreme expression of industrial noise music in the shape of the band White House. Their proclaimed mission was to produce the most extreme music ever recorded, both in terms of the musical content and in terms of subject matter. This track, for instance, is dedicated to German serial killer Peter Curtin. Uh, you may want to turn the volume down your headphones for this one. white house there i don't think we need to hear too much of that uh that was a track called dedicated to peter Curtin," sadist and mass slayer from the album of the same name from 1981 white house are credited with starting the power electronic genre but again i don't think i'm going to do a program about that particular genre as well as noise music, the second direction an industrial was developing in was in the area of making your own instruments, and in particular making percussion instruments out of scrap metal. Although pioneered by American artist Zev, this style really found its way into the industrial fold via German band Einstehzende Neubauten, which means collapsing new buildings. Founder member, Blixer Bargeld's father, was a carpenter, so he heard more power tools than musical instruments around the house as he was growing up. Later, the band were to directly incorporate them into their music in tracks like this.
1: Ocean! Der ich
0: stehe steh Neubauten. Hm. That was originally called Stehr auf Berlin, from the 1981 album Collapse, but on the compilation strategies against architecture, that was called Krieg in den Staden, uh, War in the Cities. Having scrap metal instruments proved quite practical for the band, as when they toured, they didn't take the instruments with them, and just hit the local scrap yards when they got into town and grabbed new ones. In a similar vein, British band Test Department turned to scrap metal instruments because they couldn't afford to buy any other sort. Whereas Einstadsender Neubauten celebrated destruction, Test Department wanted to create something positive and creative from the remnants of industrial society, and even joined together with a Welsh male voice choir to do a charity album for the striking miners in the early 80s. The first album is a collection of live recordings from between 82 and 84. And here's a little taste of it. Compulsion by Test Department from their first album, Ecstasy Under Duress, released in 1984. Although that's not particularly electronic, the next track is, as it's by Australian metal-hitting band SPK, who shared a love of radical leftist politics with Test Department. The name SPK could welcome from the German for Socialist Patience Collective, a group that believed, to quote Wikipedia, that the sick formed a revolutionary class of dispossessed people who could be radicalised to struggle against oppression. Musically, they were still very noisy, but often had a looped electronic bass or drum pan, which points more towards the direction they would head in in the future. From their first album, Information Overload Unit, this is a track called Berustverbot. by SPK from 1981. That leads us quite nicely into the third strand of industrial music at the turn of the decade, and that's really towards a more rhythmic and perhaps more conventional sound with synthesised sequences as a bass and more occasional bursts of noise. A key proponent of this style were Deutsche Amerikanische Freundschaft, or DAF as I'm going to call them. Perhaps borderline between synth pop and industrial. I am including them in the latter due to the generally darker tone of their music at this time. But you can decide for yourself after listening to this track, which is called <laughs> Nacht Orbit. And Nachtarbeit, which means night work, from the 1980 album Die Kleinen und die Bosen, which means the small ones and the evil ones. Later DAF albums brought them close to a synth-pop sound, but they still retained a punk-like edge, which made them closer to the subgenre electronic body music, or industrial dance, uh, which I'll hopefully come to later, and hopefully we'll come back and revisit DAF at some point but for now I'm going back to revisit Throbbing Gristle, who also drifted more in the direction of sequence-driven tracks, with less extreme noise elements. Again from the album 20 Jazz Funk Greats, this is a track called Convincing People. Convincing people from 20 jazz-funk greats from 1979, but by the spring of 1981, Throbbing Gristle had split due to Cozy and P. Orridge's relationship breakdown and the feeling that they'd outlived their usefulness. The anti-music idea had, had spread and industrial music was now global. The Robin Grissels members went on to various other projects, but they weren't always what you'd call industrial. So hopefully, I'll come back to them in subsequent programs. Cabaret Voltaire, on the other hand, was still going strong, and 1981's Red Mecca is considered one of their best albums. From it, this is Spread the Virus. the virus from 1981 from the album Red Mecca, which was about religious extremism in both Iran and in America. Chris Watson left Cabaret Voltaire shortly after their next release, 2x45, and the two remaining members, Stephen Melinda and Richard H. Kirk, found themselves looking for a new direction. The answer came from New York, in the form of John Roby, who was the co-creator of Planet Rock who wanted to remix their track Yashar for the burgeoning electro scene. The result opened C.V.'s eyes to a potential new audience. As Kirk has said, What he did with Yashar was a big catalyst in terms of us realising, well, we can strip this down, get rid of some of the clutter, tweak a few rhythmic elements, and it's actually going to work in a club. And that was a quote taken from the book Rip It Up and Start Again by Simon Reynolds yet again. And here's the track. This is the John Roby mix of Yashar. John Roby Mix number one of Yesh R from nineteen eighty three. Although that remix was released on Factory Records, Cabaret Voltaire by now were under contract with Sun Bizarre and Virgin. In fact, Sun Bizarre had deals with many of the leading industrial acts of the day. One of those was Australian James G. Thurwell, who recorded under a huge variety of names, most of which contained the word fetus. Unusually at this time, he played all the instruments himself, so had to plan his studio sessions meticulously, but ended up producing some of the best industrial music of the time. In this track, he transposes the Nazi-Soviet non-aggression pact onto one of his troubled romances. This is called I'll Meet You in Poland, Baby. A small extract from I'll Meet You in Poland, Baby. The beginning of that track is fantastic for the uh, use of delay loops and pedals and things like that, but yeah, it's fantastic. And that was recorded under the name of Scraping Fetus Off the Wheel, from the 1984 album Hole. Thirlwell was also responsible for bringing Einsteisende Neubauer to a wider UK audience by putting together the first Strategies Against Architecture Compilation. By the mid-80s, their sound had become less chaotic and more danceable, but still featured the heavy percussion that characterises industrial during this period. The band had also developed a love of amphetamines, and even wrote a track in celebration of it, which features the sound of a razor blade on a mirror. Quite which of the many percussive sounds it is, I'm not sure, but here's the Adrian Sherwood mix of that track. It is is You Go gung Feed My Ego, uh, from 1985, and I got that from the Industrial Revolution 3rd edition compilation. By the mid-80s, test department sound had changed considerably too, but not their political convictions. Their 1986 album, The Unacceptable Face of Freedom, is highly critical of the right-wing government of the time and also features the increased use of samples some musical in nature and other snippets from news programs and political speeches designed to convey their socialist message uh, this is part 1 of the title track of the album That was The Unacceptable Face of Freedom, Part 1, from the album of the same name, from 1986. The general trend for most industrial acts in the early 80s was towards a more club-friendly electro-influenced sound, which eventually became known as post-industrial, so I'll return to that in another programme. But the metal-bashing outfit that most moved in this direction were SPK, and by 1983 they were making music like this. That was the Excellent Metal Dance by S.P.K. And that was the 12-inch single version, and it's much better than the album version, the album Machine Age Voodoo. Uh, It's got a different version on it. Uh, But that was from 1983. At this time, Cabaret Voltaire, too, were becoming more club-orientated, and began hanging out at the legendary Manchester nightclub, the Hacienda, and actually became the first band to play live there, apparently. And luckily there is a CD available of them live at the Hacienda in 1983. Uh, And this next track is taken from that. It's called Talking Time and it sort of shows the more dancey direction that they're moving in. King Time from 1983, the original is on the album The Crackdown, but that was a version from the CD Live at the Hacienda. And the Hacienda was part owned and run by ex-members of Joy Division, who, after lead singer Ian Curtis's death, had continued as New Order. They too had become heavily influenced by the dance music coming out of New York at the time. And it shows most tellingly on the track that I'm going to leave you with, because that is the end of the show. There is still plenty to be heard on the industrial front, um, so I will be revisiting it at some point, and I hope to include bands like Die Krupps, Lieback, Clock DVA, Coil, 23 Skidoo, Front 242, etc, etc, etc. There's loads to go through yet. Um, this time I'm going to put a full track listing and a little bibliography on the Facebook page for because a couple of people asked for what my sources are and for a track listing. And I'll try and backdate that as well. I'll try and do that for old episodes as well when I get around to it. Um, next time I think I'll take a closer look at how the technology was changing in the early 80s and particularly with samplers and how that sort of affected hip-hop and other bands such as The Art of Noise and so I hope you'll join me for that. But for now, I'll leave you with the track that transitioned New Order from post-punk to alternative dance and pointed towards the future of Clubland. Still the biggest selling 12-inch of all time, although apparently factory records didn't make any money off it because the sleeve they had for it actually cost more than they were selling the record for, so they actually made a loss on each sale. Um, This is, of course, you can hear it in the background now, and I'm sure you already know what it is. This is Blue Monday. Blue Monday. Bye.